0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club podcast, where every month your hosts go through different aspects of cinema, whether it's a franchise, director, actor, or genre. It's always fun at the Film Club. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And this month we're talking about westerns, westerns. and this week we're talking about
1: stagecoach.
0: I'm pretty sure stagecoach is a is a masterpiece.
1: Yeah, and this was remade right in the '60s.
0: You could say Stagecoach has been remade like a million times. It's a pretty foundational movie. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this is going to be John Ford, John Wayne, their first um, coming together on a on a western film.
1: And is this our first western we've had on the podcast?
0: I believe so, unless you want to count Giant, and Giant's kind of a weird one to count.
1: <sighs> yeah, that's true. I think this is the most authentic Western.
0: Definitely. It's one of the most foundational Westerns. This was also your pick. You lobbied for Stagecoach.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a a family favorite film. And I just felt like I kind of had to run with it. It's a film that I've seen in pieces, but I haven't seen in its entirety. So I kind of wanted to give it a go. And yeah, it was like watching the movie for the first time.
0: So family film...
1: Yeah, my, this is my mom's favorite western. Um, her dad, my grandfather, he loves western movies. I mean, you met the man. Whenever we went to go hang out with him, there was always westerns on. If there wasn't, you know, WWE or the Dodgers on, this man lives and breathes westerns.
0: He he only saw movies that had ten gallon hats and spurs.
1: I mean, on days that I would just go by myself to sit with him, um, in his room, we would have like gun smoke, whatever. It would just play through. We would take Siesta's wake-up, and Westerns were still going.
0: But none of those would have been possible without Stagecoach. Stagecoach. Right? And
1: yeah, I mean, this was John Ford's first Western with sound, mm-hmm. which was, you know, big for him. But, I mean, you know, at 39, we're starting to transition, and we're kind of past the, the whole craze of Westerns because they were so easy to shoot and make.
0: Yeah, they were one of the biggest... Um, and most profitable genres you can do in the silent era because you could just shoot them in like three or four days up in the hills
1: and by thirty nine forty, a lot of the ranches the movie ranches were starting to disappear because we're transitioning into genre pieces and it's just kind of you know interesting to see them work with actual real locations and a little bit of studio time
0: and the other wild thing about the movie is that so much of the story's like plot and so much of the story's iconography just keep just got repeated. This movie pretty much took westerns from B pictures to A pictures overnight.
1: Wasn't the music from this film also used as the theme in gunsmoke?
0: I think so. so it's some of it does sound familiar enough to have been like reused in te- in television stuff
1: because when I was watching it, I was like, you know the theme sounds familiar. And then when I was doing my research about the film, yeah, Gunsmoke uses like 30 to 40 seconds of its music and they just kind of loop it over in episodes and they use it for like the main theme of the show. And I was like, no wonder it sounds familiar, but since it's so iconic of a film, of course we're going to hear music and have, you know, some of the sort of things homaged in TV shows, cartoons...
0: I think it's so hard for me to just, like, like quantify the influence of Stagecoach, since it is so foundational. I mean, it comes out in 1939, which is also considered one of the best years of Hollywood history, because you get Wizard of Oz, Stagecoach, you also get, I believe, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Frank Capra, you also yeah. get, is Gone with the Wind 39?
1: Uh, it's either 39 or 40.
0: Yeah, I mean, you get you get so many good movies out of 39.
1: And this is just 10 years into the talkies, you know, coming around. So it's 10 years, people have really learned the technology. Studios are getting that much better at, you know, producing epics. And this is what this movie feels like. It doesn't feel like, you know, some B-movie, you know, with just, you know, you got cowboys and horses. It's like, no, this feels like, you know, a full thought out story.
0: And speaking of story, let's tell everybody what the movie's about.
1: Do you have the back of the box?
0: I do, I do. And I'm going to try my best not to flub this.
1: You got this.
0: Peek behind the camera. We've re-recorded this at least twice so far because I keep fucking up reading this. You can <clears throat> do it. Mm-mm. A group of misfit travelers. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> a group of people traveling on a stagecoach find their journey to be more dangerous than once thought with roaming bands of Apache raiders crossing the land. And things become more compass- I'm get- I'm getting it. God damn it. <laughs> And things become more complicated when the stagecoach picks up the notorious outlaw, the Ringo Kid, on his quest to avenge his brother. A woman in the party who hid her pregnancy gives birth, and their path becomes washed away by floods and oncoming attacks. Soon, the film climaxes with the Apaches attacking the stagecoach in a relentless assault, only being saved in the nick of time by the arrival of the cavalry. And the film wraps up in an epic shootout between the Ringo Kid and the men that killed his brother. And our final shot is of the Ringo kid going off into the sunrise with the woman he loves. Okay, it's better than the last two times. I still feel like I flubbed a little one too many times.
1: A little bit. I think you need some practice, you know. <sighs> read it in front of the mirror.
0: Re- reading's not my strong suit. You know, I, I watch movies. I don't read movies. You, you consume know? books. I consume books. I don't read books. It's a whole different process. But yeah, this is a weird to kind of summarize the plot of Stagecoach because it doesn't seem that interesting because it's been repeated so often it's it's you know this ragtag misfit group of people come together and they have to all work together if they're going to succeed in this um endeavor right
1: yeah you know stuff we see in zombie movies where it's just a bunch of strangers kind of lumped together and how are we going to outcome what we have to face so it's like yeah you know totally when you're sitting there watching the movie you can see Oh, well, I've seen that in this movie, this movie, this movie. But it's always cool to see the origins of where these tropes come from.
0: The biggest Western trope in all of Western shows up in this in John Wayne. Yes. John Wayne is a Western trope.
1: And it's always weird when it's just, no, there he is. It's not, you know, someone impersonating him. No, there's the man. Wow.
0: Yeah, and this is like young John Wayne. This is like, God, if he's not like 30, he's close in this.
1: Yeah, and I was kind of surprised doing my research about the movie. Uh, this was John Wayne's 80th credit, acting credit.
0: His 80th credit.
1: 80th. And I was just like, you know, because this is one of the movies that really shot him to stardom. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, okay, maybe this is 10, 15 movies in 80. There was a whole 79 other movies until he hit stardom.
0: Jesus, and that's all a lot of those got to be in the 1930s where it's because it's and not the 20s well yeah and mm-hmm. the 20s but you know oh it's the if he's doing it in the 20s then it's like okay maybe it's silent films and you're padding your record mm-hmm. right when you're like well i oh i did like 40 movies in 25 well yeah but a movie in 25 took three days to shoot in a ham sandwich yeah you know but that's that's wild i mean this is also john ford and john wayne's first collaboration or or it's really early it's it's not their first it's their second
1: i think it's their first i think it was a thing where they had been friends and john wayne was like you know can i be in one of your movies and he was just like not yet not yet until we finally get to stagecoach and i think he wanted a couple of other people to be in it he wanted like gary cooper to be uh ringo kid and gary cooper was too much money there were, like, other actors that they wanted to put in places of or some of our leads. And it was just like, you need John Wayne for this movie, and you need the rest of the cast. It's perfect. It's lightning in a bottle.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a little bit of the production history of this is John Ford... Well, I guess even deeper than that, the Western was dead. Yeah. In By 1939, a lot of the studios found that Westerns were... They used to be the cheapest thing to shoot. You go up into oh, the yeah. into the mountains with like a couple of horses and, and some guys and you're done. But with the advent of sound mm-hmm. and with kind of the um, industrialization of the wider Los Angeles area where it's like, well, why would I keep this movie ranch when I can build a thousand condos and charge rent? Or why would I need this one ranch when I can build eight sound studios for and make, you know, eight different movies or whatever? Yeah. So with that rise of technology, the Westerns kind of just faded off. And they were a a B B-picture. Like, they still made Westerns, but they were, like, the real cheap Westerns, right? Yeah. And John Ford, who kind of cut his teeth making Westerns in the silent era, I think the last Western he made was a silent Western in, like, 26.
1: Yeah, it was Three Bad Men.
0: Great title, by the way. Strong title. Three Bad Men, you say?
1: three bad men
0: strong title strong yeah. title and with that john ford wanted to like kind of breathe new life into the western and he wanted a good western to do it and he gets this script that's kind of an that's an adaptation off a short story and he just wants to get it made but we're gonna talk about this john ford don't take shit from nobody <laughs> Yeah, and apparently not. You cannot tell John Ford uh, to to not do something, so he kind of strong armed a lot of producers and just dragged everyone into this movie.
1: Yeah, because I know it took him a while to finally get a studio to buy this. Um, I tried looking to see where it was shot, like at a soundstage, and I still couldn't get a straight answer because it is through United Artists. Yeah, that the movie was distributed. But, you know, he brought it to Paramount, he brought it to Warner Brothers, he brought it to a lot of the big studios, and it's like, you know, we're doing, you know, genre movies now. We're not, you know, back with the westerns, you know, we're kind of trying to up our game. And then John Ford's like, no, I've got, you know, something that, you know, is western, but also does have, you know, a lot of bite to it.
0: It has artistic merit. Yeah. Which, I can see why in 39 that probably was a weird ask, because, you know, by 39, they're, like, a lot of the studios, like you said, are doing epics, you know? Mm-hmm. They're doing, like, Wizard of Oz. They're doing Gone with the Wind. They're, like, revving up to do, like, the big Roman, you know, your your Cleopatra's, Ben-Hur's, you know, what have you. They yeah, come Ca- out.
1: Casablanca's.
0: In, yeah, Casablanca comes out in, what, 1941?
1: Right? Somewhere in there. I know we just did it months ago for the podcast, but, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, we're already starting to hit up, you know, to some of these greatest movies ever made. And I could see why it would be like, really? You want to backtrack to Westerns? You know, the kind of thing where directors were learning how to become directors. And yeah, I mean, this movie, solid. Very,
0: Kino. very solid. Very Kino. But um, you want to talk about solid Kino? Let's, let's talk about John Ford, um, who is a complicated historical film figure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't really know too much about him. Uh, read a little bit about him, and I was kind of not so happy when I saw how he treated his actors.
0: Yeah, uh, I guess the most forgiving way you would call, you would describe John Ford, and probably how he would describe himself, is a asshole or a total prick. Yeah, he he was he enjoyed bullying actors and kind of giving them like shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very arguable if he meant this in kind of a I'm just razzing you to get a to get a rise out of you or to get a performance mm-hmm. versus he just kind of like shit-talking people and yeah. he knew no one is going to shit-talk him back because he's the director.
1: And I mean, it seemed like him and uh, John Wayne were friends, you know, because they did uh, The Searchers together, right?
0: Yeah, but they did The Searchers in like 56. That was that was one of the late, later stage uh, films.
1: But I think they were able to maintain a friendship, so I think it might have been a thing where it's just you know what, I'm gonna push you until I really get you pissed off and I get the performance that I want, but at the same time, that's a dick move, you know? Throwing digs at people, and it's just like, yeah, you, you better hope that I don't get pissed off enough, you know, at and knock your ass out.
0: Oh, one time he got he got John Wayne riled up and up, mm. take a swing at him. Then John Ford mm. proceeded to, to get into a fist fight with John Wayne on set. But the thing is, is like, John Ford, as a director, he wins four separate academy awards for best director right yeah. he is one of the most acclaimed directors in in like hollywood history and he never saw himself as an artist he saw himself as a as a guy who made westerns peter bogdanovich did an interview with him in the 60s or 70s and was like how would you describe your work your your art and he's like i don't make art i make westerns because he chomped on a big fucking cigar the whole time during the interview. As you do. With with his eye patch. I know a lot of random John Ford trivia.
1: Yeah, a little too much.
0: Us Irish boys got to stick together. You know? I
1: guess, I guess. <laughs>
0: but yeah, so but in this movie, do you see a lot of like directorial intent going on here because he lobbies for this, he's trying to make this like like this vision, like he's Mm -hmm. trying to build some sort of mythology here in his Westerns that him and John four or him and John Wayne do for their entire fucking run. Right. They're building this classical Western. Are you kind of seeing where he's going for here?
1: Yeah, I can see where he's going. And I kind of like that, you know, don't like the way that, you know, he does some of his things, but at the same time, when you're passionate about something and you have the drive and you see that these, you know, people that are driven to do one specific thing, You kind of have to believe them, because it's like, man, this person is relentless and not letting this go. Maybe he is onto something. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, we see it with this movie. It's like, yeah, maybe, you know, we kind of have to go back to our roots of filmmaking and be like, yeah, this is still strong. We could, you know, pursue it, push it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have Stagecoach, The Searchers, this whole, you know new life that westerns got after him pushing for it
0: yeah i mean because he makes how green is my valley he mm-hmm. makes quiet man he doesn't just do westerns
1: no i was very shocked when i read his filmography because i was like yeah i've heard you know a lot of these films a lot of these films are you know regarded regarded as some of the greatest films of all time and i was just like man he really does have range
0: yeah, and I think it's it's weird that he only quantified himself as a Western director.
1: Well, I mean it's the same thing with, you know, people that just quantify as being, you know, into horror. Mm-hmm. You know, you find a genre, you love it, you live in it, you breathe it. Why not?
0: Yeah, and I think the the interesting thing about Ford as a director, like like you you kinda um alluded to, he was like we should go back to these kind of like foundational western genres is his style is king of like the fundamentals of filmmaking Mm -hmm. the fundamentals of film language i mean um orson wells when he made citizen kane he watched stagecoach 40 fucking times to figure out how to make a movie because it's just so foundational yeah i I, another fun thing because dean knows too much about citizen kane for no goddamn reason Um, Orson Welles, when he made Stagecoach, or when he made Citizen Kane, you know, he'd watch Stagecoach 40 times, but when he would watch it, because Stagecoach was still a recent film and a lot of the people were just on the back lot, he would just call in people to say, hey, can you sit and tell me why you made all these decisions in this movie? And he would get, like, the cinematographer, assistant directors, uh, some sound guys, Mm -hmm. like, all these different people on set, so... Yeah, Orson Welles got a um, crash course in film theory craft production just by watching Stagecoach 40 times with a bunch of people.
1: I mean, that, that's the biggest clout right there, where it's just, you know, this movie inspired me, and I want to do my own movie, so let me just call the people that did make the movie and talk to them and regale stories of the past and tricks and tips to make my own movie. That'd be awesome.
0: Very awesome. And it it's just a thing. Like, And I can kind of see where that's rolling to. Because John Ford's films... Because I've seen The Searchers, I don't know how many times. That movie is very good. We we almost did The Searchers for this episode. Yeah. But he is really the king of this fundamental filmic language, right? Him and Hitchcock are kind of cut from the same cloth. Where they mastered this film language, this style, this technique. Of we're using the camera... As the sole mouthpiece of, of the stories we're telling. And that's something that you only really get out of these directors who came up in the silent era where it was only the camera they can use. Yeah. But now to hit on the elephant of the room is how he was using his camera. So John Ford made Westerns, right? Yes. And there are certain depictions in his Westerns and in Stagecoach that is probably not totally okay now
1: no i mean definitely not um i mean there was even an interview with uh roger ebert in 2011 where he talked about you know this is a great film but just how um unenlightened the filmmakers of westerns were where it was just you know you you really singled out a whole culture of people as bad just to you know have your your good guys and your bad guys and it's just like you know That's not how the world works. It's like, you know.
0: People are complicated.
1: People are very complicated. People are three-dimensional where it's just, you know, not just good and bad. And in this movie, the indigenous people are considered the bad. And it's just like, we've got characters in the stagecoach where it's just like, you're not really good. Yeah. And that's what makes it so complicated and, you know, kind of.
0: It's the thing where even inside the movie, John Ford is making the note that people are complicated figures. We have John Carradine, who is playing uh, Uh, Mr. uh, Mr. Hatfield, who is the gentleman. He's this gambler, but he's also like a Confederate war veteran. Yeah. And he is objectively like, yeah, he presents himself as this gentleman, but he has a very, you know, sketchy past. We have Dallas, who is a lady of the night and is run out of town for, you know, selling her wares all up and down. And she's the most sympathetic character in the entire film. Well- John Wayne plays Ringo Kid, who killed a man in cold blood, but is objectively the nicest, most, like, like humble person in the film.
1: We have Doc Boone, who, you know, is the town drunk and is basically exiled out of the town of Dallas. But, you know, then again, we don't know his backstory. We hear that, you know, he did... You know, work as a doctor during the Civil War, so it's like, is he drinking because he's trying to cope with the things that he saw? So it's like, there's lots of different dimensions on why these characters could be good or bad, a mix of both. But yeah, you know, the biggest flaw of Westerns is how they portray indigenous people.
0: The Westerns, as a genre, does have this very weird history with how it treated Indigenous people on screen. Mm-hmm. Now, behind the scenes, like, John Ford was apparently a scholar of Native American lore. Like, like he actually, like, was very invested in Native American people. Like a lot, all the- of,
1: a lot of Indigenous people were hired to work behind the scenes, not just in front of the camera, where they were being hired to work, like, as electricians and, you know, with production of the sets and other things that they needed for the movie but it's just you know westerns as a whole they like to portray indigenous as the bad guys yeah which i hate and you know
0: it's also like the cheap storytelling thing because oh, yeah. you know you're making westerns which are like these good guy bad guy mm-hmm. tropes and it's like well the easiest thing we can do is okay the nice cowboy is running through the mm-hmm. desert and is being chased by the evil natives for mm-hmm. x y and z reasons it, it's it's lazy storytelling, yeah. but this is also really early storytelling mm-hmm. and it's a it's a really weird issue with these old westerns because there's old westerns that are great like oh, yeah. high noon has is a an amazing like classic Western and it has like no indigenous problems in it because mm-hmm. it's about a shootout that's gonna happen at noon when the train comes in yeah, and that's a different kind of westerns you have Shane that's another mm-hmm. one by George Stevens that's another kind of Western. Like, you have Westerns of this era, like the 40s, 50s, you know, that are a lot more, that are a lot easier to pitch for a 2023 audience. Yeah. I mean, Stagecoach is still, I feel, an easy pitch, because no one's doing, um, I guess no one's doing red face in this movie. Like, all the Native people you see are actual Indigenous people who were, Yeah, there's no one
1: portraying, you know, this culture. It's actually people of this culture, but still, it's like you know you're portraying them all to be bad when it's like no.
0: It it's the, it's also yeah. weird because they're they're also portraying specifically the Apache because you see see the Cheyenne um, messenger in the beginning of the yeah. film and they make note that oh well the Cheyenne hate the Apaches more than we do and it's like okay so John Ford is really singling out specifically the Apache mm, people mm-hmm. and. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's one of his things where he's like trying to focus this kind of kind of thing. Whereas he's like, it's not all; it's just the Apaches. But I'm like, that's really weird.
1: Yeah, because I mean, you know, it's the same thing when I read, you know, history and my family, or at least through my grandfather, it's um, a Comanche bloodline, and they're like, oh, Comanches are you know some of the most violent, and it's like. <laughs> They're like,
0: like, I don't know. I grew up in the 20th century.
1: I I did. It's like, you know, it's like, I wasn't there, but it's like, really? It's like people make these generalizations and it's like, you don't really have all the information.
0: But. Yes. But what does it all mean, though? What? Oh, well, because, you know, we're talking about the representation of, like, the indigenous people and how they're not portrayed, like, three-dimensionally, right? Yeah, because, I mean. But the characters in the stagecoach Are And I'm wondering what John Ford's, like, meaning of the film is, because we did mention that the characters in the stagecoach are portrayed three-dimensionally, and they all have these very kind of, like, darker backstories, or they were all run out of town, or they all have these kind of, like, dualities about them. And we did mention, like, Dallas, most sympathetic character in the movie. Yeah is also one that's the most shunned by everyone in the stagecoach.
1: Oh yeah. I mean the stagecoach, let alone the town. You know, they've basically exiled her and they've exiled uh Doc Boone. And you just see it within the stagecoach, which, you know, basically turns into the the stateroom in the Marx Brothers a night at the opera where they just keep shoving more and more people into the stagecoach. And it's like, my God, how many people could fit in this stagecoach before it just completely mm explodes with, you know, junk and, you know, just people.
0: Yeah, the stagecoach is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside.
1: It's a TARDIS. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's just this thing where you see her and she's being shunned for being a lady of the night. And, I mean, people are really, like, you know, we're just gonna avoid you or we're not gonna talk to you i mean like they're objectively being assholes to her
0: yes like everyone in the movie acts like they're on this moral high ground above her except ringo because he also feels like he's
1: an outsider and
0: out yeah he's the outsider and i'm wondering if what the movie's talking about is that people are more complicated and societal standards are not forgiving to the individual
1: yeah, because, I mean, Mallory, who's also in the stagecoach, she's trying to find her husband, who's part of the Calvary. We keep hitting stops that he might be at, but he keeps moving from different locations because just there's more attacks that are happening. We don't know that she's pregnant. We're just told that she's sick. And we're, you know, my assumption was she's sick, she might be dying, and she's trying to get to her husband so she can die with him
0: she she's got the uh, consumption the tuberculosis that,
1: that's why you know it's, it's very vague and of this time you know if somebody's sick it's always something that's probably fatal mm. so you know i had no idea that she was having a baby just like the rest of the cast they have no idea she's having a baby but you know dallas she's you know really sympathetic even though mallory's kind of been a bitch to her the whole trip and she's just you know Hey, if you're uncomfortable, you could lean on my shoulder. or Hey, I'll give you this or let me help you. And she either won't talk to her, she'll move away, you know, give her the silent treatment. And it's like, you know, really? You know, just because this is, you know, her profession that Dallas is stuck in, you can't, you know, accept a a friendly hand, a gesture, you know, something that this person's trying to offer to you.
0: It's one of those things that makes it a fascinating movie is that, point that john ford is trying to make here Mm -hmm. is that you know people are complicated you know because like mallory in the movie like you you make the note that she you know acts like a total bitch to dallas right Mm -hmm. and everyone in the town is like oh you're a lady of class you're Mm -hmm. you're you're, you know you're a lady yes and that's the whole reason that hatfield even like goes along he's like well, as a as a Southern gentleman, I must protect a lady in these trying times. And even he, even though he's, like, a gambler, mm-hmm. and his past denotes that he was a Confederate war veteran, mm-hmm. even he's at a higher level than, like, Dallas, right? Yeah. Even though he fought for the fucking Confederacy.
1: And he's a gambler where, you know, he has killed people over winnings over, and losings. Over
0: money. And then you have, like, other characters. Like, you also have Doc Boone, who is this drunk, and he's run out. But he is... The more, one of the most kind people, even though everyone talks down to him.
1: He's a happy drunk. It's not like, you know, he's just this, you know, angry drunk that's fighting with everybody. Or, you know, he's a really inappropriate drunk. No, he's a happy drunk. Um, I I love when we see that he, when he helps to, you know, deliver Mallory's baby. You know, he's drinking coffee. He's getting head his head dunked into water. You know, basically sobering him up. And it's just night and day of, you know... The happy drunk and the serious doctor that's ready to go to work.
0: And I think that's, again, I think that's the point that Ford's making is that duality of people Mm -hmm. and how, like, what you show on the surface is not necessarily who you are Mm -hmm. inside. Like, that's the banker, uh, Gatewood, who is...
1: The most annoying man in the film.
0: He is the least sympathetic character. Oh but my god, on paper, I was ready
1: to throw him out of that stagecoach.
0: I, oh my god, There's I think there's a moment in the movie where they threaten to kick him out of the stagecoach. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, oh, great part. But that's one of those things where, on paper, he should be the most respectable, high member of society. Mm-hmm. But no, he's like the scumbag who's stealing 50 grand out of uh, payroll.
1: He's, you know, the 1800s Ken. Looking for his Karen.
0: I, I was going to say like Bernie Madoff, but okay. <laughs> well,
1: that too. But you know. Uh, somebody
0: somebody who stole a shit ton of money from people and tried to get away with it?
1: Well, that too. But also, you know, a Ken, and you know, he bitches and moans about everything. You know, they, they want to get out of where the baby was born, and you know, well, screw her. You know, if her and the kid can't hack it and the stagecoach will leave him behind. And it's just like, wow, you are a big scumbag. You know, it's like there's no redeeming qualities about you.
0: And that's that's one of those things where the banker, he doesn't have a lot of redeeming qualities, even though his title should denote we should treat him with respect, right?
1: He's a banker. We should trust him.
0: But with like somebody like, you know, Dallas or Doc Boone or Ringo, their titles should denote them as people we should not trust. We
1: should be afraid of them because, you know, they do these unsavory things and then we we find out more about Dallas, you know, that whole first night that the baby was born. He, she let um, Mallory sleep and she took care of the baby all night. She made broth for Mallory to get her stronger. She brought her water. She, you know, kept her warm. And it's like all these things that, you know, you should be a bad person because of, you know, your profession. But really, you're making sure that this woman gets through the night comfortably, let alone staying up all night to take care of her child so that she can rest. And it's just like, how bad could she really be? Especially when we find out her, her backstory and why she becomes a lady of the night.
0: I like how we're doing the the politically correct term, lady of the night. We can say prostitute, right? Yeah. Like, that's, because, you know, she's a ye olde prostitute from the old timey days.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I think, you know. Lady
0: of the night is a lot nicer of a term.
1: It's a lot nicer, and I mean, you know, she doesn't come across as a bad person or, you know, you know. Yeah, I'm a hoe. I don't care. You know this. This is you know day job, know. night job. You know I don't care. But it's just like you know. I like, don't
0: know if they were saying, yeah, I'm a, I'm a ye oldie hoe from you know the uh, the going around, seeing with all them weird prospector types. We
1: don't know. But you know, it's I like feel I,
0: that one. We know <laughs> definitively. They probably uh, weren't calling each other hoes.
1: Tomato, tomato. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I just I love that you know we finally get the backstory of her, and it's just. You know, she was orphaned at a young age and for a woman to try to survive during the 1800s was very difficult because it's just, you're a woman, there's not much for you to do apart from taking care of a household during this time frame. And if she's a kid with no parents, what is she going to do? What trade is she going to get into to survive to adulthood?
0: Well, she could have gotten into movie stunt work and I that leads me to wanting to talk about the climax of the movie. Actually, just... Not the climax, climax, one of the climaxes, the sick-ass horse chase. Oh, yeah. You know, on the stagecoach, the Apaches run in, where it looks like some guy fucking died getting run over by that stagecoach.
1: I mean, you know, that is one of my favorite things about Westerns, is just the artistry and all the stunt work. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, man, I mean, it's not even just down to people, it's down to the actual animals, the horses, the horses have to know how to drop and, you know, get back up, stay down. It's just.
0: Oh, oh, it, you are, huh, you sweet summer child. This is back when they didn't care. They would just shoot the horse. Yeah. So, you no, know, this, no horsey. well, yeah, that's kind of a sad thing about these early Westerns. So the West, they did this thing and I think I can't remember what it was called. It was like the something W or it might have been like the horseshoe W or whatever, where they would tie a, a, a little, it would tie two strings, yeah. right? One would be on the rider and one would be on the horse, and they'd be at this certain length, and you would gallop, and then once you would like it shot, quote unquote, the mm-hmm. rope would tighten, go taut, the rider would fall off, the horse would go up a few feet, and then they would tumble over because mm-hmm. they wrapped a string around the yeah. thing's leg, and it would tumble. Right? Sometimes the horse would, you know, be fine, took a tumble, get up, it's mm-hmm. it's okay. Other times it would break its leg. Or die because of the fall, and they fall weird because it's on a hill, and yeah.
1: Okay, so let's Old school
0: westerns were rough.
1: Yeah, let's not talk about, you know, animals getting hurt because, you know, I can't stand that, but... Don't worry,
0: horse is delicious.
1: Shut up. (laughs) So, uh, we have Yakima Kanut.
0: Yakima Kanut.
1: So, I mean, this guy is amazing. I mean, that that scene, let alone of Ringo moving from the top of the stagecoach down to the lead horse...
0: Yeah, which the mo, it's hard to describe that to people like all- like over podcast. But if you watch it like that, it's not bullshit. They're because in it's- full gallop.
1: Let's see two four, so it's six horses and however big the stagecoach is.
0: Yeah, and it's not like oh they're going like thirty and they're speeding up. No, they're in full trot, and he's actually like leaping
1: mm-hmm.
0: at like 60 miles an hour yeah. from thing to thing. There ain't no thing as a safety rope. Again, this is 39. If you were stuntman and you died, they'd send a, you know, a flowers to your family and half a day's pay. And then they just get the next guy.
1: But I mean, this man, I mean, he, he created magic on the screen. Cause I mean, I was just, you know, so engrossed with that scene because it's amazing seeing him, you know, move, at 60 miles per hour, you know, on wild animals, and he doesn't get hurt.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's also the one where it's like the uh, Yakima Kanut, he, I mean, he did play red, you know, red face in this film. He, you know, donned it to play an indigenous character. Uh, But probably because the the actual indigenous actors did not want to fucking do this, there's the point where one of them is on the front horse and he gets shot Mm -hmm. and he falls down, And the whole stagecoach runs over him. Yeah. And he found out that there's just a wide enough space to where if a man laid um, completely flat, straight on the ground, he would pass cleanly through the horses and underneath the axle of the stagecoach. Which is important when I say completely straight. Because he said that if his elbows were out too far, the axle would take them off. Which I'm like, that is insane.
1: That is terrifying.
0: So, you know, I think that's one of the only excuses I can give uh, to, to Red Face in cinema. But, um, uh, <laughs> but I
1: mean, that, that's a stretch. But, you know, I mean, to, to, to get, you know, some of these scenes. Because, yeah, you don't want to put actors in jeopardy that don't know how to do these stunts. And, I mean, this guy was um, originally, he worked in the rodeo, right? I believe so. So it's just yeah you know learning how to work with animals and you know learning how to do stunts and then you move to the big kind of stunts like in Stagecoach where it's just
0: oh it gets bigger.
1: What else did he work in?
0: Uh, he uh did all the stunt work for Ben Hur, including oh, the wow. chariot sequence, including yeah. the you're if anybody ever wants to have a good time, watch the chariots race sequence mm-hmm. in Ben Hur with um Charlton Heston, and there's a part in it where the Ben Hur's chariot hits another chariot yeah. and the whole chariot goes up in the air like six feet the rider goes up in the air 15 feet and comes Oof. crashing back down fun fact there's supposed to be a safety rope there the stuntman another cannot yakima Knut's son said i don't want the safety rope it's not going to look good on camera so he took it off before the shot went so he goes up 15 feet in the air comes crashing down and slams into the chariot shatters his jaw which is in the movie, oh. and the first thing he said when they went cut was like, "Hey, did you get the shot, guy? Because he has a broken jaw." Uh. Dedication to the craft. Yeah. Oh yes, Randy. He's talking about Ben Herman. <laughs> Do you want to come? We were talking about Yakima Kanak because he did this uh, stunt work for a stagecoach. Oh, okay. Also yeah, you her. may continue. It. Oh, thank uh, you. Talking about Ben Herman, and I was like, "Randy's about to Randy's about to was, come back like, to podcasting." Talking about Ben Herman without me. I don't
1: no, we we're talking about the Ten Commandments.
0: Randy would come back to <laughs> podcasting.
1: You all better not try and slide one
0: of
1: these podcasts. past We're not. We're
0: not. We, we're not. we, we have Stalker specifically for you, Randy. Mm-hmm. I know. I know. I'm Watching y'all. <laughs> uh. And that's like, and that's like one of those crazy things, right? You know, like stunt work back in the day yeah. was like. Hardcore And don't get me wrong Like it's still hardcore today Like I'm not gonna be Tom Cruise And jump off a fucking building Right But like You know It used to be like Sometimes you know Stuntman died And you just You know
1: Yeah I mean you know
0: Look we take a half day Come back tomorrow morning Keep on keeping on Like it's fucking wild
1: Yeah I mean this is 39 This is still very new Into Hollywood Hollywood's still figuring itself out I mean we don't have a lot of Safety precautions You know Precautions that we have now
0: they were firing live rounds in this movie.
1: Yeah, that's why, you know, it's incredibly dangerous time. And, I mean, even now, people still, you know, get injured on set. People die on set. And, you know, it's just, you know, the ante is up in these movies because anything could kill you in this movie.
0: Yes, anything can. But you know what actually kills in this movie? This script, which is just perfect. Right? Oh,
1: yeah, it was a really good script. I wasn't sure, you know... Because it's a Western, like, are we going to really lean heavy on the action? But it's like, no, there's actual plot and there's There's, character development.
0: There is way more plot and character development in this than action set pieces. There are two major action set pieces. Mm -hmm. It's the stagecoach attack Mm -hmm. and the shootout at the end. Yeah,
1: which we don't even see.
0: Yeah, it's literally, John Wayne drops to the ground, fires off three shots, and then that, oh, movie's over, that's it. It's all tension and it's all build up and it's so masterfully done because the movie is uh, 96 minutes, right? I would argue that 89, like 90 minutes of this is just tension and buildup. Yeah. It's character development. That's I mean,
1: it. for me, everything always comes back to Jaws and your, your favorite movie, m- one of my favorite movies of all time. But, you know, we're, they keep talking about the Apache attacks. They're coming. They're coming for us. We never see them. And it's just this, you know, illusion of they're on us. They're watching us, but we don't see them.
0: It's so good when John, uh, when, uh, John Wayne's character, Ringo Kid is like, they're like, oh, why should we let you on? Well, you might need me, pilgrim.
1: We have no pilgrim in this movie. This in, is before pilgrim. In my
0: head, you might need me, pilgrim. Why is that? Because I saw the Apaches. Or at least the smoke stacks and it cuts over and you see the smoke rising up out of the hills yeah, and, and, I think and it's that's, like, that's so good.
1: It's so masterfully done because it's like, we don't need to see the attackers. We just need to see, you know, like the smoke or just that feeling of, you know, they're after us. We have to get to point A, you know, from point A to point B. But, I mean, A, B, and C seem to be, you know, this big circle that we just keep going round and round and round. Just go,
0: going round and round Monument Valley, boys. Round and round Monument Valley.
1: It's like, damn, eight hours, you know, just going around in circles, I'd be exhausted.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things where I find Stagecoach fascinating as a modern viewer. Yeah. Because we don't get this much, like, character development and tension buildup in most modern, like, action films.
1: Yeah, and that's why I was saying, you know, this, you know, kind of reminded me of Jaws, because, you know, we're not seeing the danger, but we have the tension there where we don't need to see it. We just feel tense. These people need to move. They have to keep constantly moving. It's the same with the shootout at the end. You know, the entire town is buzzing because Ringo's back and they're ready for a shootout. You have uh, the newspaper guy that's like, hey, make out the headline that the Ringo kid was killed. And, you know, you have the writers like, well, I didn't even hear the gunshots. No, it's going to happen. You know, we give, just,
0: give it about 10 minutes. We, we
1: want it hot on the press. So it's just all this tension and this buildup and the shootout finally happens and we don't even see anything.
0: It's over. It's over in 10 seconds.
1: It's over in 10 seconds. And it's, you know, oh, God, did he make it out of there? And you don't even know until you hear his footsteps coming back to Dallas.
0: And which is such a great bit of filmmaking there right yeah because it's it's one of those things where it's like we we don't know what the shootout is but we hear like 10 gunshots right Yeah, we
1: hear the rounds going off
0: and it's interesting because you know uh ringo's like "I oh, i got three rounds left in this here winchester pilgrim no, again pilgrim always says pilgrim and it's not until later <laughs> and it's so funny because you know we hear all these shots go off and our brain fills in. it's like Oh, what happened? What's going on? And Dal starts crying, and there's that whole, like... There's, like, a couple beats where it's just her crying. Then we hear the footsteps, and you, as the audience, is, like... Well, does Ringo die? And it's, like, you know, granted. An audience member of 1939 might have actually thought, Man, does John Wayne survive? Now we're, like, okay, John Wayne's probably gonna, gonna live, right? Yeah,
1: but this is, you know, the breakout role. So it's, like, they could kill him in this.
0: Yeah, and then we get the whole, oh, the... The tragic hero lost his life, you know, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And, like, we do see, like, characters die in this movie, you know? Yeah. We d- uh, uh Hatfield, he gets killed. I uh, mean... Who is it? Uh, that
1: that I think that scene made my stomach tense up the most. Because, I mean, they're, the stagecoach is completely surrounded by the Apaches. They're all am- out of ammo. They're completely out of ammunition. And I'm, you know... I'm leaning on some of my historical facts of, you know, what would happen during some of these attacks. And I'm thinking, that poor baby probably isn't going to make it. The women are definitely not going to make it. And you just see Mallory leaning off to the side and she's praying. And you just see the barrel of Hatfield's gun coming to her temple to like, to put her out of her misery. Because
0: he knows that she is going to suffer a fate worse than death if she is captured, right? And
1: I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, stomach's tense. And then that's when you hear the gunshot and see his... Revolver drop and I'm thinking I'm like you know you were starting To redeem yourself But I'm glad you died instead of her It also felt it was Taking me to the mist where he Kills everybody in the car and then five Minutes later here come the troops to save him And I was just like no like think it out Don't do this well- Mm.
0: Again, that's why I love, like, the ending of The Mist is so good. Oh, I, I would recommend The Mist to anybody. Yeah,
1: I've end- only seen that movie once. It's one of those movies where it's like, I can't watch it again. Great movie. Great movie, but ending can
0: Ending, ending hits different. It does. But And I think that's the interesting thing about, you know, Hatfield's character, right? Is because up to this point, he is, you know, the scoundrel gambler, but mm-hmm. you're trying to act like a gentleman. And it's like, he is objectively, like... Maybe not, maybe not a bad guy, but he's not a good guy, right? Yeah. You know, Confederate veteran. He's every time, you know, he's like, yes, when we fought for the Union and the, you know, the to squash the Southern Rebellion, he's like, it was the war for Confederate independence. He's like, it was the Southern Rebellion. Shut mm-hmm. your mouth. Mm-hmm. And it's like, he's objectively like bad guy, right? He's trying to rationalize. Trying to rationalize. And in that moment where he, you know, has the one bullet left and he's going to kill Mallory, You're like, I don't no, don't kill Mallory. Like, blah blah blah. She's been
1: a bitch, but it's like, don't kill her. Yeah, she's a new mom, all that stuff.
0: But in his mind, when you look at it through him, like, to him, he's doing a kindness because he's like, I'm gonna save her from like whatever's gonna happen. Yeah, and it's like it's again the complexity of some of the characters is fascinating for a movie from 1939.
1: Yeah, that that's why it's just you know it's like wow you know for being a a movie from 39 a western. It's so compelling, and there's just so many levels and emotions to the movie. I mean, you know, the best part is when you hear the bugle of the cavalry, and it's just like, okay, they're going to be okay. You know, it's like, they've weathered the storm, the baby's going to live, maybe Ringo and Dallas are going to have a future with each other.
0: It's also, I I love the fact where it's like, oh, the trope, the cavalry come in to save the day, Mm -hmm. here comes the cavalry. Mm -hmm. Well, this was kind of like the first one, and it led to some pretty shitty tropes. I ain't gonna lie. Yeah. But um, uh, is there anything else you want to talk about, Stagecoach? While we're here,
1: uh, let me see. Okay, so I think we have to bring it back to Buck because I mean, Buck is just—he's the comedic relief that we need in this movie.
0: Yes, and he's a lot, and he's a lot easier of a pill to swallow than some other John Ford comedic relief later on.
1: Yeah, because I mean, he's not like you know. No, being a blatant asshole. He's just kind of...
0: He's kind of an idiot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of an idiot. He's kind of dumb. But not in a mean way. Like, um, I love when he's talking about his new wife. And his new wife happens to come from the same part of Mexico that my family comes from. Oh, you don't say. Yeah, so, you know, hearing him say, you know, yeah, you know, I married this new wife, and I didn't know I'd have to take care of her family. It's like I'm feeding all the Chihuahua. And I was like, hey... That's where my family comes from. But just seeing these funny things where he's just kind of, you know, because it's t- two separate cultures. So, you know, it's like I love seeing him kind of like trying to learn. Hey, you know, well, I'm not used to this. I got to take care of my wife, her family. And then later on in the film, he talks about, yeah, did you know now my wife's grandfather's going to move in with us? Who else from the family's going to move in? And I'm just like, yeah, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, you know, if Grandpa needs to move in, Grandpa's moving in with us.
0: You you just really like the call out to, to Little Chihuahua for you?
1: Oh, absolutely. And anytime that, you know, that town, you know, from my, my lineage is, you know, in anything, yes, I, I'm very, you know, proud of it. Um, I mean, I even love to... I don't know where it is uh, in the movie when Mallory has her baby. That location.
0: Um, I think it's the halfway point. If not if not the halfway, if it's not the halfway point, it's really close.
1: Yeah, so I, I love when they get there and they're talking to the guy that, I don't know if he lives there or he runs this little um, halfway point. Yeah. Um, The Mexican guy. <laughs> him. Yeah. I mean, him where it's just kind of like, yeah, you're, you're kind of being racist with him. You know, it's like, you know, you're, you're being like, you know, oh, he's the funny Mexican guy, you know.
0: He does the voice. He's dressed exactly like you think he dresses. Yeah. yeah.
1: But, I mean, he's also the comedic relief, too, where, you know, when they're talking about his wife, and they're like, well, you know, your wife's an Apache, and he's like, yeah, but, you know, she's not that bad, and, you know, he, t- he's talking about, yeah, you know, it gives me so much problems, and, you know, I whip and whip all day, and I think it's Boone or it's gatewood that says oh your wife and he goes no i'm talking about the horses and it's just you know these small moments where it's like bro you know you think it'd be okay to be talking about whipping your wife all day like that it's like i mean
0: this is the 1800s like
1: what are we doing but it's just you know those small comedic points where you know it's like it shouldn't be funny but it is funny because of the delivery and, I mean, you see his wife. I don't know if we ever find out her name in the movie or he's just, that's my wife.
0: Yeah, I do know that the actress is actually, like, a was, like, a famous singer in, like, Mexico.
1: Yeah, I wasn't expecting a musical number in this. Not, not that it's, like, a full-on number, but, like, she does sing.
0: Yeah, which she, is kind of wild.
1: And I love that her singing is basically helping... Um, people escape from this halfway point. They escape with the backup horses. And they're just like, you know, dude, your, your wife betrayed you and betrayed us. They took the, the backup horses and he's just kind of like, oh, well, I could find another wife. It's okay.
0: But those horses. <laughs> but
1: the horses, my God, you know how expensive horses are? And it's just like all these like small moments where it kind of feels like we're watching the Three Stooges. And then it's like, no, no, no. we're We're really watching, you know, a serious Western movie.
0: Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing about the movie is that it is funny, it is dramatic and it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. It is a masterfully composed western film. Yeah. And it's like goddamn like, you know, I'm I'm surprised people don't go back to Stagecoach as often as they do other films. Like The Searchers, like I like The Searchers. I think The Searchers is a beautiful movie, but I think Stagecoach is a more important film.
1: It's more complex
0: um i mean they're both really complex like like very complex movies but for very different reasons yeah. um i think stagecoach is just such a well-structured film this is still a film i feel i can recommend to people and they would still get something out of it
1: oh yeah and i mean this movie was also nominated for seven academy awards it did win two of them for best supporting actor and best score mm-hmm. which you know
0: This is the only time John Ford doesn't win a Best Director Oscar when he's nominated.
1: Oh, yeah. And, I mean, it's like, it's your Western. You know, you're here. You got this. And it's like, no, we're not going to give it to you. I mean, granted, I don't know who took the Best uh, Directing uh, Oscar in 39. Don't
0: worry. Like, two years later, he takes Best uh, Picture away from Citizen Kane. So, it's fine.
1: Yeah, you know, it comes full circle, but I mean, yeah, this is an important film. I don't know if this is on the top 100.
0: It was on the AFI top 100, but it was, I believe it was taken off in the 2007 update. In the BFI, I don't believe it is on their top 100.
1: Yeah, because I know westerns kind of made a resurgence in what was it like the 2010s
0: no well it made a resurgence in the 1990s with like dances wolves yeah. unforgiven um tombstone. tombstone and like it made a resurgence then and then it kind of waned away and then we got a little bit of we got a few more notable westerns like bone tomahawk came out in, like the 2010s and that's that western a a lot of people enjoyed
1: we got a true grit remake we
0: did get a true grit remake we got a magnificent seven remake hateful eight hateful eight yeah that that's tarantino he also did django Unchained, which Mm -hmm. is his love letter to spaghetti westerns so the western genre is a genre that is still utilized It, it ebbs and flows but the thing is is so many of the westerns owe so much to stagecoach yeah I mean I watched uh, Bone Tomahawk not too long ago and it does have a stage it it pays homage to like the searchers yeah. and the fact that they're traveling across this vast land to go save people but it's also it has a stagecoachy vibe because it has this arc right it's mm-hmm. all these disparaged characters coming together to achieve this goal you know to mm-hmm. save somebody and that arc movie narrative of we have all these people they're in the they're on the boat they're mm-hmm. on the train they're on the stagecoach traveling and we need to work together to get to our destination. And I think that trope alone gives stagecoach a nice cementing in cinema history just yep. creating that trope, giving the world John Wayne, giving um John Ford pretty much his stamp on the western genre that he will continually um restamp from this point onward.
1: Did you know that the stagecoach is still standing? The is a- it? The actual stagecoach from the movie? Yeah, it's here in California. It's in the Kernville Museum. Um,
0: I don't know uh, where the fuck that is, but okay. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm not sure where that is either, but yeah, the, the actual stagecoach is still around. I thought, if anything, it might be, you know, at the Gene Autry Museum, because I know there's actual, like, film props from Westerns there. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, you know, till this day, the stagecoach is still around. I mean, I don't know if they built the Stagecoach for the movie, or it's just something that was on a backlot somewhere that they they rented out. Probably
0: a backlot deal.
1: But, you know, it's just kind of fascinating, you know, 84 years later, you know, a lot of these pieces still exist. I mean, people are still watching Stagecoach. I know this criterion you have came out not too long ago.
0: Oh, no, that's a pretty recent criterion. That's the Blu-ray. And honestly... For everyone out there, I would uh, definitely recommend giving Stagecoach a watch on the nice Criterion edition. Oh, absolutely. Hashtag, we wish we were sponsored. Please sponsor
1: us, Criterion. (laughs) We love you.
0: But, uh, you know, uh, Becky, Boo. Yes. Your final thoughts on Stagecoach. Would you recommend?
1: Uh, Absolutely. You know, two thumbs up. Uh, You know, it, it has some problematic things in it, but that's just, you know, a sign of the times and hopefully... As we progress through the years, you know, we become more inclusive with filmmaking. But yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember the last time we did a black and white movie for the podcast.
0: We had a whole month of them in, uh, well, almost a whole month of them almost in, a whole in month. Humphrey Bogart. We had the... A
1: February. Uh, but it's just, yeah, you know, I, I miss, you know, just sitting there watching black and white movies. It just, you know...
0: With those, when there's real artistry on display.
1: Yeah, you know, you feel like you're back in those times and like you were saying earlier, a lot of westerns that we have now really have to thank you know stagecoach but i think they also have to pay homage to the actors from the silent era that you know were really learning how to you know make movies and you know do some of these stunts and make create these tropes that you know we all live by now so it's like you know there's a lot of people that deserve credit for the the current westerns that we have
0: oh yeah with without the great train robbery we do not have stagecoach and without stagecoach we don't get good and the bad and the ugly and without good and the bad and the ugly we don't get Django and shane and without Django and shane we don't get quentin tarantino and spike lee hating each other for the end of time
1: i mean well, butterfly effects people well without these early films we don't have ghost town and knott's berry farm where you walk through and you feel like you're walking through the Old West, and it's kind of like, wow, I'm walking through one of these old movies. It's just, you know, we have a lot to thank, you know, to Westerns.
0: Yes, we do. And I would absolutely recommend Stagecoach to anyone out there that enjoys movies, that enjoys Westerns, and then might want to give a John Ford movie or a John Wayne movie a shot. You can do a lot worse.
1: I do have one boo fact before we end of this episode
0: okay you get one boo fact
1: did you know that the hat that ringo the kid wears was actually john wayne's personal hat
0: no i did not
1: that was his hat and he would wear it during the next two decades of making western films and he retired it after Rio bravo because the hat was falling apart
0: hmm fancy actually i'm gonna have a similar trivia fact Next week for the movie we're talking about, which is going to be?
1: The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly.
0: Yes, Sergio Leone, Clint Eastwood. It is a masterpiece of cinema. Uh,
1: And who scored that film?
0: Ennio Morricone, one of the greatest composers in music history. Not film composers. Composers. Yes, composers. I love Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I can't wait to watch it. Um, But yeah, have you ever seen it before?
1: I've only seen, you know, the scene that everybody's seen—the standoff.
0: The standoff at Sad Hill. Oh, yeah!
1: But <sighs> You're the rest love of it. the rest of the movie is completely new to me, so I'm excited to talk about it.
0: Me too. But where could people go if they wanted to listen to that?
1: Well, if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio. And YouTube.
0: Yes, you can. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. You can like, comment, subscribe to some of our lovely videos or slideshows as we like to call them. And if you wanted to follow us on social media, you can also go to
1: The Film Club Podcast on Instagram where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, trivia and our random adventures we go on.
0: And with that
1: we'll see you next week at The Film Club.
0: Have a good week, everybody.